If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and also at Psalm 51. Uh, we're going to talk about sin today. That's, that's the topic, sin, and specifically ensnaring sin. And when someone begins to talk about sin, people think, well, he's got ideas of who he's talking to or specific sins, and I really don't today. I don't have anybody in mind. We're opening God's Word, letting it speak to us in this series of cautionary tales. Last week, Pastor Brian looked at... at uh, King Saul, today we look at King David, Solomon, his son next week, and then Rehoboam, David's grandson, in two weeks. And we want to receive warning from these characters of Scripture, great character of Scripture, David, a man after God's own heart, who is someone who is a cautionary tale at the same time as having, one, having a heart after God. When you talk about sin, some people think, well, he's thinking about this or that. I am not. I, I, and when you talk about sin, people kind of step back because, you know, that we, we, we shouldn't be judgmental. So there's this spirit, only God can judge me. How dare you talk about sin? You know, when we say only God can judge me, and that's the big protest, that what that actually translates to for many people is shut up so I can sin in peace. Isn't that unfortunate? I believe the spirit of God will work in hearts today I don't have any particular person or situation in mind, but I know the human life and human experience. I know my own struggles with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I know our struggle as human beings with lust and greed and arrogance and power. So as we look at this cautionary tale of David today, we're gonna to be exploring what it means to be entrapped in sin, when sin ensnares us. We have the sins that we commit, the maybe one-offs that, that of course we need to deal with before God, but then there are certain sins that seem to be like quicksand and, and we try to cover them up, we lie, we deny, we blame. There's all kinds of complexity and deep consequences. So today as we look at the cautionary tale of King David, we're gonna talk about when sin ensnares us. And we'll see that when sin ensnares us, genuine repentance opens our lives to the fresh flow of God's liberating mercy and grace. If the Holy Spirit speaks to you about a particular sin that you need to repent of today, I trust you'll understand that genuine repentance, not just remorse, we feel bad for the consequences of the people that hurt, but we really do say, God, this is sin. I acknowledge it as that. I turn my heart, my mind, and the direction of my life back toward the righteousness that's found in Christ. That is true repentance. When we do that, we open our lives to the fresh flow as God's children of his mercy, where he doesn't give us the, the punishment we deserve. And to his grace, where he gives us the, the relationship, the renewal, the forgiveness that we don't deserve. That's grace. And I trust that if God speaks to you today and you enter into a moment or a season of repentance before him over a sin, you will find God's grace and mercy refreshing and liberating as it flows into your life through repentance. We're gonna look at six stages of ensnaring sin in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. King David is at the height of his career. He's united all 12 tribes. Things are going great, the economy is strong, the people are united. They actually have moved from being very tribal to having boundaries and borders as a nation. He's at the pinnacle of his success. And yet an ensnaring sin drags him deep into the complexity and damaging consequences of sin without repentance. Six stages of ensnaring sin. The first stage of ensnaring sin that we see in David's life that'll be paralleled in our lives when we get caught up in sin that consumes us 
is a dissatisfied life. A dissatisfied life. With each of these stages, there is a lie that David believes, and I believe that when we enter into these kinds of stages, we too believe these lies. The lie David believes that starts this whole cycle of ensnaring sin is he says, who I am and what I have is not enough. We get that from the narration here of the first couple of verses. Who I am and what I have is not enough. When we get to the point that we believe that we need something more to be fulfilled, something more than Christ to have meaning and purpose, we're setting ourselves up for a pattern of sin or a depth of sin that can do great damage in our hearts and lives and hurt others and destroy the relationships we cherish the most. Our satisfaction is to be found in Christ and Christ alone and, and our sustenance and our, our meaning flows from the one who is our vine. We are united with Christ. Look at verse one of 2 Samuel 11. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, we read that and that's interesting, that's nice. He sent Joab the general off. But see, in the world in which David lived, a king went to battle with his people or it was showing great respect to them that he wasn't supportive of them. And so it's odd that David stays home in Jerusalem and says, Joab, off. Something's going on in his life. He's going through a season here. Maybe it's midlife crisis. Maybe uh, there's some, some complacency, something setting in, some dissatisfaction, some discontentedness. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. So he's been asleep. He can't sleep. There's this unrest he has, this disquieted spirit, this dissatisfied life. And it says, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, it's not wrong to notice the beauty of a woman, as he does. But he doesn't avert his eyes. And we know this takes him further into a relationship with this woman that's so inappropriate, inappropriate and immoral. He's a married man. His palace would be at the highest point in Jerusalem. He would be able to look down on all the other homes. And the top of a house in this era was like the porch or the patio, and they would often eat there, they'd talk with friends there, they could communicate to neighbors across the rooftops, and, and so the, the top of the house was space that would actually be used, and so this is a place where she is bathing. But he's got this dissatisfied life, and when you say who I am and what I have in Jesus is not enough, you're putting yourself in a place of great peril. It'll be easy then to move to the second stage. The second stage of ensnaring sin is a disconnected heart. This is where we step back from God. God never steps back from us as his children. But we kind of disconnect because something else has got our attention and that happens to David here. And he believes this lie that God cannot give me the pleasure, control, and stuff I need. There's something more that I need Actually, it can be really defined when we get to this lie, it's really what I want. It has, to, has nothing to do with what I need. And so some other pleasure, some other control, power, status, some other thing, some material stuff that'll, that'll somehow bring fulfillment and meaning to my life. And now we begin to bring idols into our lives and we push God out. It's a disconnected heart. We see in verse three, and David sent someone to find out about her. He had no business as a married man trying to find out about who this woman was and what her story is. His heart is stepping back from God, and this is often when we won't go to church, we won't spend time in our small group, we're serving on a ministry team, we won't open the Bible, we won't pray, because we're beginning to withdraw in this disconnected heart. The third stage of ensnaring sin is a desensitized conscience. This is where our conscience, as we draw away from God in this dissatisfaction, then our conscience begins to blur 
what is right and wrong, and we begin to blur how we perceive our relationship to the things and people of this world. When our conscience gets desensitized, others are objects. Other people become objects to use rather than people to love. Every human being is made in the image of God from conception forward. Every human life has dignity. And we are to treat one another in such a way that we love others as we love ourselves. And so in this case, what we see in the story is David objectifies Bathsheba, this woman that he sees. He uses and abuses her. He uses and abuses her husband. He uses and abuses Joab, who brings other people in that get used and abused. He uses and abuses the baby that's born of this attack on Bathsheba. Others become objects to use when we get to that place. Rather than loving people, we are in a very dangerous spot with a desensitized conscience. And I say that this was an attack upon this woman because he is a man in position and power. She has no right to refuse. You know, one of the, in our modern culture, one of the most prominent ways today we objectify people is through pornography. You can say, well, they're willing participants, da 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 da, da. But it's the objectification of other people rather than seeing them with the dignity and love that we're to have as God's children. See, he's in a position of power. As a matter of fact, the scriptures, nor the prophet who confronts David later, never assign any blame or responsibility for this sin on Bathsheba. This is not adultery. This is a man in power forcing himself on a woman who has no opportunity to even consent. Look at how this man who's described as a man after God's own heart has gotten to a desensitized conscience. Read in verses four and five, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. And he, think that he thinks that's the end of it. It's over, okay? He got some pleasure out of it and probably he still isn't satisfied because he's not finding his satisfaction in the relationship he has with his God. But we read the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And we learn she's married to Uriah who is of a Hittite background but is off at war fighting for David and his armies. So David panics and he thinks, how can we cover this? How can it look like Uriah got her pregnant? I'll bring him home from war right away. I'll tell him to go home, spend time with his wife, and they'll believe, everybody will believe, just only she and I will know that this is not his child, but I'll bring him home. So he brings him home, but there was this code of honor among soldiers in that day that you didn't go home and spend time uh, with family and friends and laughing, being intimate with your wife if your fellow soldiers were off at war. And so David says to him, you know, you've done well, now go home and spend the night with your wife and go back to battle tomorrow. But he has this code of honor and so he sleeps in the doorway to the palace on the palace grounds where the servants of the palace would sleep and David wakes up the next day and he thinks, okay, now the cover-up is gonna take place and he finds out Uriah didn't go home. So David brings him in again. This time he gets him drunk, hoping that in his drunken stupor, it will lower his ability to make wise decisions or maintain his integrity, and he'll, he'll go home and sleep with his wife, and then this will all work out. It'll look like it's his child. But Uriah, even in his drunkenness, maintains his integrity even when the king doesn't. And he again sleeps on the palace grounds with the servants. David wakes up the next day, 
And here again, Uriah hasn't gone home. So he says, this isn't gonna work. I can't get at it this way. I gotta get rid of Uriah. I'm gonna have to marry her, do this quickly so everybody think the baby was just born prematurely and it's my child because he was at war after all. And so he puts together this, this idea and he, he sends Uriah back to go to war and he sends a note through Uriah. He's carrying his own death sentence to General Joab. And we read in verse 15, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. You see how he's now even making Uriah just a pawn in his cover-up? He's now objectifying Uriah. He's just an entity, a thing that needs to be removed so that he can clear up his image. You know, when we get to the place where we have a desensitized conscience, we get into that immoral relationship, we, we breach those financial boundaries, we, we develop that, that hate toward that person, there's this lying, there's this stealing, there's this cheating, there's whatever it is. We often hurt people, and sometimes the people we love the most. We'll get to that place of a desensitized conscience. The fourth stage of ensnaring sin is found in verses six through 25 in the continuing story here. It's a damaged perspective. He goes out on an all-out attempt to create a cover-up of this whole mess, including lies and the death of Uriah, all these things. And so he, he believes this lie when he gets the damaged perspective that what others think is more important than what God knows. So he gets to the place that his image before others is more important than his integrity before God. And when our image before others is more important than our integrity before God, we are in a dangerous place where sin is gonna keep dragging us down in this downward spiral. If you're at the place where what others think about you and how they perceive you professionally or personally over what your God already knows about you and dealing with it, doing business with God in repentance. Heed the warning of David's life. The messenger comes. The idea was you put Uriah up real close in the fiercest battle, then have the soldiers all back up, look, make it look like a military strategy, but abandon Uriah and he'll be killed. Joab says, I like that plan and I've got five enemies of my own. I'm gonna abandon all six of them. See how this is ensnaring even others in sin? Now Joab's sinning and murdering people. And we read the messenger comes to David in verse 24. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now David feels some relief in the sense that now the cover-up can take place. The proper mourning will take place and marry the wife, make it look like it's his, his child all along. There was no immorality, etc. David told the messenger in verse 25, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab, will you please, and your message back to him. Even with the messenger, he's trying to keep this image up because what that messenger thinks of him is more important to him than what God knows. But you know, one day we all give an answer to the God who knows everything about us. And we need to be more concerned about our integrity before God than our image before others. Fifth, the fifth stage of ensnaring sin is a distorted reality. 
Now it's just not a damaged perspective, but now all of reality is getting distorted here. It moves even further. In verses 26 and 27, the first part of 27, David believes this as the lie here, that investing in a series of lies is far better than admitting the simple truth. And when you get to that stage, you're gonna keep cycling around and keep making more lies. He's tried here, he's tried here. We read in verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Now maybe David did later, but there's no indication that David ever told her, at least we know at this point she has no idea that her husband died because David put him in a position to be killed. She thinks her husband died with honor fighting for his nation, when in reality a murder has taken place, but she mourns. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. So he continues this series of lies and cover-up rather than admit the truth. And part of repentance is being able to stop the lies, the cover-up, the excuses, the blame, and simply say, it's sin, and admit the truth. Or else we continue into a distorted reality. We have a narrative we're living that is far from what our God knows and eventually brings more lives to ruin and hurts the relationships that are closest to us. The sixth and final stage of ensnaring sin is a displeased God. In the New Testament, we're told we can grieve the Holy Spirit. As God's children, we're never removed from his presence in our sin, but our God can be grieved, displeased. That's when the Holy Spirit brings the weight and burden of conviction into our hearts and our lives as God's children. If you look at the last part of of verse 27, the final phrase of chapter 11, but the things David had done displeased the Lord. Oh, that that may never be said about any of us. The thing that David had done displeased God. How does David get to this place? Well, he's overall believed this lie. If I cover up my sin with more sin, I'll get away with it. If you think that's how you're gonna get through something immoral, something that is an abuse of power and of people, or acquiring things and stuff in your greed, your lust, your arrogance, that more sin will help you get away with it, I guarantee you that breaks the heart of your God. So, the first few verses of chapter 12, Nathan the prophet shows up. They have to understand in the ancient times in which this story is set, a king like David would function like the Supreme Court. He'd take two or three days out of a month and he would sit at the gates of the city and people would come and the disputes they had among local, that couldn't be resolved with local officials or patriarchal leaders would finally come to the king and he'd be the Supreme Court. What he said was the final say and it was over, whatever it was, whatever dispute. And so Nathan comes, this prophet of God, and he presents a story, and it seems like he's presenting it to David as the judge of the Supreme Court. He wants a decision. So he says, there is this situation, David, of this wealthy landowner who has many herds of sheep, and he has this neighbor, this poor shepherd, who has just a few sheep with this one precious lamb that means so much to him, and this wealthy landowner abuses his power, and he comes and he takes that little lamb away, from the poor shepherd. 
And as Nathan ends the story, he's waiting for David's judgment. Now, I think Nathan, under the direction of God, told that story because God knew there'd been a story in David's life. There's so much emotion to David's response. You remember, he started out as a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. There's probably a story in his own life that parallels this story. He remembers the injustice. He remembers the pain. And so his response to Nathan's story, the judgment he gives, is found in verses five and six. He says, it says, David burned with anger against the man. And said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. He had no conscience. He had no heart. What he did is awful. It's atrocious. He should be wiped off the planet. So the judgment comes down with such power and clarity. Nathan responds to David in verse seven, you are the man. And immediately David knows. The conviction overwhelms him. Nathan goes on to say, God has a message for you. There are going to be consequences in your family. There's going to be a lot of turmoil. You're not going to be able to accomplish all the things for God you want to accomplish. It's going to have to wait for your son. Because God gave you all 12 tribes. He gave you great peace. He gave you great power. He'd given you the wife you needed, and yet you said it wasn't enough. Notice in verse eight, Nathan quoting the Lord, and speaking on behalf of the Lord says, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. You remember how all this started, at a satisfied heart. Who I am and what I have is not enough. I need something more. And the promise of God is to his children, he knows our needs better than we do. We will never need more. The lie of Satan is we need more. The lie of Satan is that God is holding back from you. That goes back to the garden. That's what he convinced Adam and Eve. Oh, God knows that if you eat of that fruit you're not to eat of, oh, he's holding back on you. You're gonna be like him. You notice these ensnaring stages of sin? David ends up with a life, the child dies, his family's a mess, he isn't able to build the temple. There are consequences, natural consequences that come from our sin. We can be completely forgiven by God, but the knots that come into our human relationships and our human lives continue until we're in glory. The old Southern Gospel song says, sin will take you farther than you wanna go, keep you longer than you wanna stay, and cost you more than you wanna pay. This is a cautionary tale. This is a story of a great character of scripture that God doesn't hide the dark side, the shadow side of this great character of scripture from us. It is meant to be a warning. Look at this cycle of ensnaring sin and, and just notice how this is a cycle that you can see takes place about six or seven times in this passage, this cycle takes place. It starts with a dissatisfied life. Who I am and what I have isn't enough. A disconnected heart, we withdraw from God. A desensitized conscience, people become objects. A damaged perspective, a distorted reality, and eventually a displeased God. And if we don't repent somewhere in this cycle where we say, this is sin, I turn my heart, my mind, and the direction of my life back toward obedience to God and a walk of righteousness, if we don't do that, what happens is 
our lives are more dissatisfied, we get more disconnected, and it just continues to grow deeper and deeper and entraps us like quicksand, dragging us down more and more. But how do we then experience the flow of God's mercy and grace? Repentance. Repentance. Which is a turning of heart and mind from our sin and self-righteousness to the path of righteousness God has for us as his children. Let me share with you four steps of genuine repentance now as we conclude from Psalm 51. Psalm 51, if you want to turn there. At the heart of this psalm, you can go there in your hard copy of the Bible or in a digital app like I'm in on my iPad here. At the heart of Psalm 51, we have David's deepest expression before God in his humility and repentance. He is flat on his face before God. Psalm 51 all scholars, even scholars in the day of Jesus believed this psalm was David's prayer after being confronted by Nathan, after coming to that place of being broken before God. And in verse 17 we read, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. If the Holy Spirit has been saying, you are the man, you are the woman, this sin is sin. Look what it's done to people. Look what's happening here. You've never truly repented of it, whether it was Something in the last few weeks, the last several months, the last several years or decades. Have a contrite and broken heart. Have a broken spirit before God. Fall before God and repent. First step of repentance is acknowledge the seriousness of your sin. Sin brings destruction and devastation. It has consequences. Acknowledge the seriousness of your sin. Look at verses one and two of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God. Don't give me what I deserve. According to your unfailing love, that's your grace. According to your great compassion, that's your love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my Sin is always before me. It's here. It's been haunting me. I'm convicted. I get it. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You might say, well, what about his forcing himself on Bathsheba? He sinned against her. He's not diminishing that. When we actually lift up and understand that our sin is against God first and foremost and it is an affront to him, it actually lifts up those we have wronged, doesn't diminish them. Notice something here in his confession. He doesn't do what David did and say, the woman who you gave me, Lord, or the woman she shouldn't have been bathing on top of, Lord, you know, he doesn't make excuses, he doesn't explain away his sin, he doesn't blame, he says, it is weighing heavy on me and I have sinned against you. Acknowledge the seriousness of your sin. Name it for what it is. Wrong, sin before God. Matter of fact, in these two verses, he uses all four Old Testament Hebrew words for sin. Notice he uses twice in these four verses the word transgression. Some of your Bibles might translate that trespass or trespasses. Transgression is rebelling by crossing a moral boundary that God has established in his holiness. You cross a line. David said, I crossed the line. He uses the word iniquity, which means it comes from uh, the, or the word for twisted or perverted. And he's, then in, when he makes that reference in this psalm, he talks about how from the time of my birth, I was bent toward sin and had, a, had my back toward you, God. 
He's speaking of how we are all sinners because we all descend from Adam and Eve. We all are under the curse of sin. We're all born sinners with a bent toward sin and our back to God. He calls it iniquity. It's coming from our twisted, fallen nature. When we sin, we just prove that we're sinners. The third thing, the third word he uses is sin. And a couple weeks ago on Good Friday, Pastor Brian aptly uh, defined this by saying it's an archery term. It means to miss the target, to miss the mark you're aiming at. Our aim is the holiness of God. And in our sin, we miss the mark. And he says to him, I have crossed your moral boundary. It comes from my fallen sinful nature. I have missed the mark of your holiness. And then the fourth word he uses there in verse four, one of the last few words of that verse is the word evil. This word now speaks of ensnaring sin because this word means continuing intentionally in a pattern of sin. When David moved on from sexually overpowering a woman to taking her husband's life, you can see it becomes evil. And then the cover up and just adds to it, it becomes evil. And so he is open and honest before God, this is sin. If the Holy Spirit has been saying to you, here's an area of sin in your heart, your mind, your life, your behavior, here are the people you hurt, acknowledge before God the seriousness of your sin. Don't mess around, don't blame, don't explain it away. Name it for what it is. And then name it for what it does. Name it for what it does. As you read his confession, he talks about how it the sin has been crushing him on the inside, his bones, the guilt, the weight, the shame. He talks about the people it's hurt. He talks about how it's destroyed the witness of his life for his God among the nations. He, he names it for what it does. The first part of repentance is to see sin as God sees sin and acknowledge it as sin. Confess it. The old Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. You don't understand the sweetness of Christ's love and mercy and grace, his sacrifice on the cross, his love for you, until you understand how bitter sin is. Acknowledge the seriousness of your sin. Secondly, ask God to wash you clean from sin. Ask God to wash you clean from sin. He says in verse 7, as he's asking for cleansing, being washed. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood in the temple or in the tabernacle when sacrifices. So he's referencing that kind of thing. The, the, the blood of Christ is what purifies and cleans us because of his sacrifice. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That wash me is the word in the Old Testament that can mean simply to wash someone's clothes. Take the old dirty rags and bring them out clean, Lord. Hide your face from my sin, he says in verse nine, and blot all, all my iniquity. Lord, forgive me so much that you turn away from my sin. I don't want you to focus on that. I want your forgiveness. I, I want you to clean me. And then he says in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew my feet on the path of righteousness, a steadfast spirit, so I can walk in the way I'm to walk as a follower of Jesus, to live in love like Jesus. But he says, create, notice that word, create in me a pure heart. 
That word create is the same word used for create in Genesis 1 and 2. It means to create something out of nothing. When you come to God in repentance, you acknowledge your sin, you ask for him to cleanse you from your sin, you're saying to him, I bring nothing to this equation, you are the one who brings the cleansing to me. Make me new. Ask God to wash you clean from your sin because he is merciful. He doesn't give you what you deserve. He is gracious. He gives you what you do not deserve. He gives you a continued relationship with him. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you life. He gives you hope. Sometimes we think repentance is when we come to Jesus as Savior and it never occurs again in our lives. Repentance is a part of the believer's life until we're with Jesus. Every time we sin, we need to say, yes, that's sin. God, wash me from my sin. Help me now, my heart, mind, and direction of my life to walk in your righteousness. It's a pattern that takes place in the life of the believer so that we're being sanctified, set apart from our sin unto God by his grace. But before we can be sanctified, set apart, Unto God from our sin, we need to be saved by God's grace, mercy, and love. And if you haven't come to that place, you put your faith in Jesus, then your back is still toward God and you have no power in any way to walk in righteousness. But when you come to faith, the one who died, was buried, and was raised for you so that your sins could be washed away and you could be given a relationship with God, you come to that, then you are saved by grace now and forever. I just want to urge you, put your faith in Jesus. Right where you are, just acknowledge, okay, God, I know I'm a sinner. I want to be saved by your grace, so I'm your child. And as you do that, he makes you his child, and you walk with him. And then in that pattern of your life, once you're saved by grace, then you'll be set apart, sanctified by grace, set apart from sin and unto Christ as you walk with him, but you first have to be his child for that process to take place, that transformation so you can live in love like Jesus. I'll be in the lobby if I can speak to you. Our care and prayer team are always down front. They can help you. If you join us online, you can just text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen, 58568. If you wanna to talk to us about what it means to know that you've come to Jesus as your savior. You can do that if you're in the room. If you say, I gotta communicate with someone right now. This is what I'm doing. I'm making this decision to trust Christ as my Savior. Do that today. Child of God, we should be in a pattern of repentance when we sin, breaking that cycle as early as possible. When the dissatisfaction sets in, when the disconnection occurs, we need to immediately begin to just say, that's sin, and pursue our Savior. Number three, the third step in genuine repentance is ask God to restore the joy of your salvation. Ask God to restore the joy of your salvation. David cries out, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Remember, Saul, the Holy Spirit left him. Praise God that in the New Testament era in which we live, that when the Holy Spirit comes on us, he is permanently with us as the guarantee until we are in the presence of God. But the Holy Spirit then is gonna be the one calling us to repentance. He's gonna convict us of when it's sin and say, this is sin, you need to name it for what it is. Don't make excuses, confess it, repent of it. And then it's the same Spirit who will convince us when we begin to walk in righteousness. Yes, yes, keep going, yes, this is the way. This is how you live in love like Jesus. He's the one who transforms us. Set us apart unto God more and more. Do not cast me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say restore my salvation. That's not an issue here. 
The issue is the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. When you ask God to restore the joy of your salvation, you're asking him to be a part of restoring your connection with him. Remember, you disconnected and things got dissatisfied, and that's how ensnaring sin begins. You're saying, God, help me to connect with you afresh. Open his word, pray, be in worship, be with other believers in prayer, hang out with God's people, begin to serve him again. That's a part of that restoring the connection. He wants to restore that for you and then restoring your hope in him, not just your connection with him, but returning to the joy of your salvation is restoring your hope in him. He's the one who can give you hope. You know, some of us are, have a very high inner critic and some of you, as you're listening to me, you're gonna beat yourself up so much that as God forgives you and the flow comes, you won't forgive you. Who are you to play God? If God forgives you, then over time you need to embrace that forgiveness. And that's what he says here at the last part of verse 12. Grant me a willing spirit. In other words, free me from this burden and sustain me. Give me hope. His hope isn't in his own ability to walk away from sin, but it's in God working in and through him that will free him from his sin. As the grace and mercy flows, he will pursue the righteousness of Christ in his repentance. Ask God to restore the joy of your salvation. Fourthly, ask God to use you for his glory. Ask God to use you for his glory. A lot of people think, well, that ensnaring sin, it's over. God can never use me in any way. God can never use me. Ask God to use you for his glory. David says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Verse 14, he says, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, he says, my mouth will declare your praise. Ask God to use you for his glory, using your failure and sin to warn others. David said, I'll teach transgressors your way. I'll be a warning to them. I'll tell them what it did to my family, what it did to my, re my reputation, what it did to our... Uh, the kingdom of God's people. I'll be a warning sign to others. Use me as a warning sign for your glory. And then using his mercy and grace to draw others. When David says, I've been freed, I've been liberated from my guilt before God, even though I live with the consequences, it will draw others to God for God's glory. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's saying to you now. You are the woman, you are the man and you need to do business with God, but I can tell you this. God is not done with you. As you acknowledge the seriousness of your sin, as you ask God to cleanse you from sin, as you ask God to restore your joy and your hope, you can ask God to use you for his glory because he's not done with you. We sing a song every now and then, I'm not dead, you're not done. He's not done with you. I don't know where you are in the cycle of ensnaring sin. Maybe it's the very early days. Maybe you've gone around that cycle three or four times and you've created quite a web of lies and sin and it's been devastating and destructive in your family and your relationships. Repent of that sin today. Even take Psalm 51. I've done this in my own life. Take Psalm 51 this afternoon, sit down, lay out flat on the ground with the Bible in front of you and read Psalm 51 as your confession prayer to God over your sin and see how God's grace and mercy flow into your life to liberate you from the bondage of that ensnaring sin. And let me just say this. I'm not just talking to you. I am a sinner saved by grace. 
I am a sinner being sanctified by grace. Just like you, until I am with Jesus, I struggle with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I need to have a regular pattern of repentance. This is what the church is all about, is we help each other deal with our sin and then walk in righteousness to thrive in our relationships, to flourish. We encourage each other on in our service and lives for Jesus together for the glory of God and hopefully we're a warning to others and also a, a great story of God's saving grace that draws others to Jesus. Again, if you are easily trapped by your inner critic and so heavy on yourself, you struggle to receive the forgiveness of God, we're all sinners saved by grace here. And we're all being saved, not being sanctified by that same grace as well. I like how the old preacher Vance Havner put it, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Ensnaring sin often destroys the people we love the most. But we can find repentance and freedom in the fresh flow of God's mercy and grace in our lives. Would you close your eyes? Talk to God for a moment where you are. Speak to him. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been saying, you are the woman, you are the man, here's the sin. Begin that repentance now in your own heart. Admit it to God. Ask God to wash you clean. Ask God to restore you to the joy of your salvation. Ask God to use you again for his glory. If you're doing business with God right now, Commit to him that you'll read in your own confession before the Lord, Psalm 51, to him today. Reach out to a Christian friend. Reach out to our pastoral team, maybe your small group leader, Christian you respect. Tell them you're processing your own repentance. And as far as you feel comfortable, let them know. Let them walk with you. You're not alone. Father, I pray for those who maybe are resisting the conviction of the Spirit. May they stop resisting. May they repent. Pray for those who are beginning that process of repentance. We can say it in an instant, but it often takes days and weeks to process all that before you. And I pray they take Psalm 51 and just pray it back. Father, we all individually, collectively as a church, want to be such a strong witness in our world for Jesus today. Our world needs not more hypocrisy, but clarity. And I pray that we would be a clear witness to the world of your saving grace and your sanctifying grace. Thank you that you don't gloss over some of these dark spots and some of the greatest characters of Scripture to serve as a warning to us and also to teach us how to properly repent. May we follow the pattern of Psalm 51. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.